0: Thank you, Cameron. Tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we think about the fatal mistake of Uzzah. Before we get started, I do want to take this opportunity to welcome those who are visiting. We're always glad that you're with us. We're thankful for visitors from week to week. We appreciate so much your willingness to come and to honor us with your presence. It may be that you're looking for a church home. We always want to make you feel welcome. We encourage you to consider becoming a part of the work here. We'd love to have you come and join us as, as we do our best to live like Christ and to make Christ known in this community. Tonight as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to be talking about the fatal mistake of a man by the name of Uzzah. As we begin looking at this text, what I want us to do is first of all examine the text and then secondly make some application. There's a lot of information contained in not just this chapter but also in a commentary on the event that occurs as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter six. And then as we think about the New Testament, the new covenant under which we live. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 verse four, That whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There are a lot of great truths contained in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of principles. that if we go back and we read and study these principles, we can find encouragement and instruction with regard to living under the law of Christ. And so tonight... We're going to first of all look at the text and I want to begin by saying that the events that are recorded in chapter 6 are tragic because you have involved in this a man by the name of David and David as you recall was a man after God's own heart. David was probably the greatest king over the United Kingdom. As a matter of fact, The children of Israel, the Jewish people, they esteem David highly and rightly so. But in this context, David bears a lot of responsibility for the problems that are created and specifically as they relate to Uzzah and his death. So I want to begin by calling attention to verse 3, the passage that was read a moment ago, and as we look at verse 3, the writer first of all talks about the transportation of the ark. In verse 3, the Bible says that they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, made of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah. To this day, David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. Then the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. Some might question why God would have struck down Uzzah because after all the ark of the covenant was being transported the oxen stumbled and for fear of the ark of the covenant no doubt falling to the ground he reached out took hold of the ark and the Bible says God struck him there for his error I want you to look with me at 1 Chronicles chapter 15 for a moment. Because David provides a commentary on the events that occurred in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. You have to remember that David was king. And as king of Israel, David had the responsibility according to Moses and the law of reading and studying and knowing thoroughly the law of Almighty God. If anyone should have known how God wanted the ark to be transported, then David should have known. And so in 2 Chronicles, or rather 1 Chronicles chapter 15, here's what David said in light of the events that occurred as recorded in 2 Samuel. David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister to Him forever. And then drop down and look if you would at verse 12. Then He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord. God of Israel, to the place I had prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult Him about the proper order. Some translations say the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, As Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. The problem, number one, they were not transporting the ark according to what was written in the law. And then, secondly, the wrong people were involved in the transportation of the ark. I want you to go back with me and look at a couple of passages again in the Old Testament. I want First of all, to call attention to the book of Exodus in chapter 25. In the 25th chapter of the book of Exodus, God, in this context, instructs Moses and the children of Israel to make a sanctuary. We talk about the tabernacle, the purpose of the tabernacle. In verse 8, God said, let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Now look at verse 9, according to all that I show them or show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it. If you look at chapter 25 and what is recorded about the making of the tabernacle And the furnishings that went along with the tabernacle, God was extremely specific. He was very specific in instructing them how to make the tabernacle. Now, having said that, turn over, if you would, to chapter 39 of the book of Exodus. In chapter 39, we have this statement made. In verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did according to, listen to what he says, all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And then in chapter 40, verse 16, again with regard to the tabernacle and its furnishings, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. So here is God. He gives a pattern for the erection of the tabernacle, its furnishings. And the Bible says the children of Israel complied with God's instructions, that Moses himself complied with the instructions of Almighty God. And then with regard to the transportation of the ark, turn over to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10. In the 10th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, here's what God had to say. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. So God gave very specific instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle and then he was again very specific with regard to who would bear the Ark of the Covenant. Poles were to be placed in the rings on the outside of the Ark and they were to bear that Ark that is the Levites on their shoulders. Now if you go back and look at Numbers chapter 4 God, again, very specific with regard to the Levites who bore the ark. The Kohathites. David, Uzzah, and what was recorded in Second Samuel. Brought upon themselves disaster. Why? Because they failed to do things God's way. If you go back and you look at the old, old covenant, the old law, again, God was very specific about the tabernacle, the transportation of the tabernacle, the people that were to transport the Ark of the Covenant. What happened was a great mistake. David, as I mentioned a moment ago, should have known better. He ought to have known this is not what God wants. Uzzah, whether well-intentioned or not, there is no commentary as to what he was thinking. I tend to think that he was, in his own mind, trying to do the right thing. But you see, there was a great penalty for violating the will of Almighty God. Now, we look at this Old Testament example and we think about how specific God was in the days of the Mosaic Dispensation. There is a lot of application for us today. I want you to think with me for just a moment or two about some of the things that we can learn from this account. I want to begin by talking about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, that is, He is over all. The psalmist in Psalm 99 at verse 1 said, The Lord reigneth. God is the creator, sustainer, and also the redeemer. Since God created the world and the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Since he is the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer. He has every right to give us a law or to give us instructions on how we're to live and to interact. How we are to engage in fellowship with Him. How we are to approach Him in worship. Now we talk about the Old Testament. If you go back to the period of the patriarchs and we talk about, again, the sovereignty of God. The fact that He is over all. You know, Paul said, there's one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. He's over all and so He has the right to legislate. How we as his creation are to live. So having said that, if you go back to the period of the patriarchs, one of the things that stands out is God required submission on the part of those people, didn't he? You recall in Genesis chapter 2, God having created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden. Very specific instructions given They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that the serpent came on the scene deceiving Mother Eve. Mankind, of course, endowed with the freedom of will. We have the ability, the right, as God's creatures, to make choices in life. We're not robots. God endowed in the first couple the right, the prerogative, to make their own choices. Unfortunately, in chapter 3, they made the wrong choice. They ate of the forbidden tree. As a result of that, the Bible tells us that death came upon the human family. First, there was physical death. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, at verse 12, through one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then secondly, spiritual death came upon the human family. That's why you have, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promised seed given. God had a plan in place before the world began. God recognizing that in giving His creation the freedom, the choice to choose between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error, mankind would make the wrong choice. Mankind did make the wrong choice. And so a plan was in place. John in the Revelation talks about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the promised seed is given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But nonetheless, God required obedience, submission to His will during the period of the patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And the Bible tells us that in the process of time, these two young men brought forth offerings unto the Lord. Cain brought forth of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. The Bible says that the Lord had not respect unto Cain and his offering. Abel, however, brought forth of the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, and God had respect unto Abel and his offering. Now, somebody might ask the question, how did these two young men know what to sacrifice to Almighty God? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. God had instructed them. You Remember what Paul said, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Obviously, they had been instructed. We could make a case that Cain and Abel. Spent the same amount of time cultivating their offerings. What if those offerings cost the same amount of money? Worth the same? Wouldn't matter. The problem Cain did not offer offer by faith. And Abel did. Well, what about the Mosaic dispensation? Did God require obedience to his law? Absolutely. You remember back in Exodus chapter 19 after God's people were brought out of Egyptian bondage? God said, you've seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. In verse 5 he said, now therefore if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. The covenant given unto ancient Israel was conditional. They had to live in compliance with that covenant. When Moses rehearsed these words to the children of Israel, their response was, in about verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said, we'll be obedient to the will of God. We'll do what He says. Now anyone with just a slight understanding of the Old Testament knows that during the period of the Mosaic Dispensation, time and again, God's people Would become unfaithful They would be faithful for a period of time And then they would become unfaithful As a result of that The northern kingdom Was taken into captivity by Assyria In about 722 B.C. Over a hundred years later God took the southern kingdom Into captivity Why? Because of disobedience Because they refused to honor him To live according to his will Now you can go back and you can look at the period of the Judges, going back in history. The book of Judges closes with these words. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now wait a minute. Did God not give them certain commands to follow? Yes, yes, he did. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the children of Israel were faithful to God during the days of Joshua and the elders who outlived him. But then there arose another generation after them that knew not the Lord, nor yet the great works which he had performed in Israel. So you have God's people being obedient for a period of time and then living in disobedience. The southern kingdom, the children of Israel, they were spared. Why were they spared? Because God needed to bring the Christ into the world. He needed that seed line to bring the Son of God into the, into the world. And he accomplished that. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Now, I say all of that to ask this question. What about the New Testament? The New Covenant? Is God very specific about what he has to say regarding how we are to live? To act? Is God very specific about how we become a part of his body, the church? Is God very specific about how we are to worship him? Let me say this. God is just as specific in the covenant, under the covenant that we're operating under today as he was during the period of the patriarchs and during the period of the Mosaic Dispensation. There's some passages that we ought to consider in this light. I mentioned a moment ago that God is sovereign. God is over all. And so in light of that, here's what God's son said in Matthew 28, verse 18. All power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus here saying that he has all authority, all power. That means he has the right to delegate to us how we're to live. He has given us his law. It is the new covenant. He is the mediator of the new covenant. It is a better covenant. It was founded upon better promises according to Hebrews chapter 8 at verse 6. With regard to this covenant and with regard to Jesus being The lawgiver. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says that there is one lawgiver, that'd be the Lord. And so as the lawgiver, he has the right to legislate how we're to live. The Bible tells us, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop, in the presence of Peter, James, and John. That God the Father spoke on that occasion and God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And here's what he said, hear him. God wants us to listen to the voice of his Son. How do we do that? Through his word. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But note, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. God is interested in people doing his will. God is interested in people doing exactly what He says in His Word. I do not have the right to legislate certain things, spiritually speaking. What I am to do is to submit my life to Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do in word... Or indeed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to do it by His authority. So, I have to appeal to the authority of Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. The inference there would be there are some things that are not good. Here's the bottom line. We have to look at God's Word. It's identified as the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. It is called the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. I have to read, study, and digest this book. Then I have to draw certain conclusions. I have to decide whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, truth or error. How do I do that? What's the standard? It's God's word. Nowhere in scripture does God give man the right to alter his word. We don't have that right. We don't have the right to legislate what we think or what we want When it comes to the work of the church, the worship of the church, the way into the church, everything spelled out. Everything recorded in scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 at verse 6, Paul cautioned the saints in Corinth not to go beyond that which is written. That means there's a standard here. Now, you remember in Exodus chapter 25, God instructed the children of Israel to build the tabernacle according to the pattern? Let me ask this question. Is the New Testament a pattern for us to live under or live by today? The answer is yes. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, at verse 13, Paul said, hold fast the form. That word form there is pattern. Hold fast the form, the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, Paul in writing to the saints in Rome said God be thanked that though you were the servants of sin you obeyed from the heart that form. There's that same idea. There's a form, a pattern of doctrine that we obey, that we submit to in becoming children of God. So having said that, Let me just try to step through some things that in my mind help us to appreciate how specific God is in his law and how our responsibility is to submit to the sovereign God of the universe. First of all, let's just talk for a minute about the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, at verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that you may know how to conduct or behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul here, in writing to Timothy, is giving him a letter that outlines the conduct and really, in in some detail, the government of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, with regard to the local church, the local church is governed by men who meet the criteria in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. They function as overseers, bishops, pastors. Those terms are synonymous. They're one and the same. When you read in the New Testament, Nowhere do you read of a one-man pastoral system that is foreign to New Testament Christianity. In the New Testament, we read of a plurality of men who functioned as overseers or bishops, shepherds, in the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 14, they ordained elders in every church, plural. When Paul left Titus in Crete, one of the things that he left him there to do was to appoint elders in every church. Again, those men meet the criterion set forth in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and following. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13, we have a second set of guidelines and these guidelines pertain to those who would function as deacons or special servants in the church. The deacons operate... Under the oversight of the eldership. They are given specific tasks to engage in. They fulfill their work. And as a result of that, they're blessed by Almighty God. So in a local congregation, you have elders. And then you have deacons. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at verse 5, you read of evangelists. An evangelist is a preacher, a minister of the word. I am not a pastor. I have never been a pastor. Number one, I'm not qualified to be a pastor. Number two, there is no one-man pastoral system in the church that we read about in the New Testament. Now, I would freely grant that a man might meet the criteria in 1 Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, and be a preacher and an elder. Peter was in 1 Peter chapter five. I'm not saying that's the wisest thing to do, But I'm saying that it is a scriptural thing. And then you have those who comprise the membership. All of us are identified by scripture as brethren. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossians 1, 2. We are members of the household of God, the family of God, Ephesians chapter 2. We are people of like precious faith. When I I think about the church, locally speaking, that's what the scriptures say. Now, when we talk about the church universal, there's, there's one head. Jesus is the one head of the church. No one has the right to arrogate himself to the office of headship of the church on earth. No one has that right. The Bible says, speaking of Jesus, He is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. How many bodies are there? There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. So there's one head and there's one body. Sometimes individuals will say there are two heads, one in heaven, one on earth. The Bible says there's one head, the head's in heaven, the body's on earth. Others might say that there there is one head and many bodies. Again, the Bible says there's one head, and there's one body. I want to ask you this question. With regard to the church, how do we become members of the church that we read about in in the New Testament? Is God specific about how we become His people? The answer is yes. Just as He was specific during the days of the patriarchs. Specific during the Mosaic dispensation. He's specific today. God tells us exactly what we must do to become his people. Do I have the right to change the terms of admission into the body of Christ, into the church? Absolutely not. Why? Because I'm not the lawgiver. My job is to preach the word 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. That means preach everything the Word includes and exclude everything else. My job is to preach what the Bible says. We appeal to Scripture. I encourage people, I encourage everyone, search the Scriptures. Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. When you search the Scriptures, you make sure that what I say or what anybody else says coincides with this book. If what I say does not coincide with this book, by all means, do not accept it. Because it'd be false. And it'll cost you your soul. That's why it's important for us to search. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11? They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Paul and Silas were in the city of Berea. They had been run out of Thessalonica. Here they are preaching the Christ in Berea and these people are checking them out. They're looking at the word of God and they're making sure that what an inspired apostle had to say coincided with truth. Now let me ask this question. If those people checked out an inspired apostle, doesn't that suggest to us that we ought to check out the people that we listen to? In no way Am I on a level equal to the Apostle Paul? And they checked him out. What that says to me, we need to make sure that what we hear is truth. So what about how we become members of the body of Christ? That is, how do we become a New Testament Christian? The Bible's very plain, very specific. As a matter of fact, dogmatic. Here's what the Bible says. I want to begin by saying in Psalm 119, the psalmist said, The sum of your word is truth. What we have to do is look at the sum totality of God's word. We have to look at various scriptures and then bring those scriptures together and then draw our conclusions. So first of all, we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In no way would I ever minimize Believing that Jesus is God's Son, because Jesus said, Except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The Hebrew writer said, Without faith, it is impossible to be well pleasing to Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So I have to have faith in Almighty God. If I don't believe in Jesus as a Son of God, I might as well close up shop and go home. I'm lost. Secondly, I have to repent. That is, I have to be willing to lay aside a life of sin in favor of the will of God. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13. Except you repent, he said you'll all likewise perish. I can understand that. Most people that I know, they too can understand that. So I have to believe Jesus to be the Son of God and then I have to repent of my sins. There is a third thing involved and that is to confess with my mouth what I believe in my heart. As Paul outlines in Romans chapter 10. To, To acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8 verse 37. But I'm not finished. Then I must be baptized, immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Now, sometimes people say, well, why do we have to be baptized? I mean, baptism, after all, is an outward sign of an inward grace. Baptism is simply a sign signifying that I'm a child of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that baptism puts us into Christ. You see, we're not a Christian. We're not a New Testament Christian until we do what they did. When when we do what they did, then we become what they were, which is New Testament Christians. Here's what Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I don't know many folks that can't understand that. I mentioned before, when I was just in grade school, first grade, And we had those reader books. I can't even think of the name of them now. But the books about Dick and Jane. Some of you probably remember them. And one of the books, one of the books that I remember, it would have a sentence like this See, spot, run. I can understand that. Look, if you can understand that, You can understand what Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It takes work to misunderstand that. You can't misunderstand that unless somebody comes along and clouds the water. I want to ask you this question. Did Jesus have all authority? Yes, he did, Matthew 28, 18. Did Jesus know what he was talking about? The very question. We're talking about the Son of God. Surely he knew what he was talking about. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who am I to come along and say, you know what? You don't have to be baptized into Christ to go to heaven. Could you imagine somebody in the presence of Jesus saying, now wait a minute, Jesus. I believe in you, but I'm not going to be baptized to be saved. Would anyone have had that kind of audacity in the first century? And yet some people today say you don't have to be baptized. What about on Pentecost Day? You remember Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven? On Pentecost Day, he took the keys to the kingdom and unlocked the doors, thereby allowing people to become members of the body of Christ, the church, the kingdom that had been foretold of centuries earlier. When they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. And be baptized. That is a coordinating conjunction. Repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. You can't be saved unless you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, and are baptized into Christ. Now, who said that? Peter did. Jesus did. All I'm doing is saying this is what the Son of God said. I want to ask you a question. How many times have you heard people say, and in no way am I impugning their motives, how many times have you heard people say, all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him into your heart and you'll be saved. Or recite what is typically identified as the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. Please listen to me very carefully. I do not know of one passage in the New Testament that teaches the sinner's prayer. It's not there. Every instance of conversion in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, I can find belief, I can find repentance, I can find confession, I can find immersion in water. I do not find the sinner's prayer. I do not find faith only. It's not there. I'm not saying that to be ugly or haughty or arrogant. I'm just saying the book that we call the Bible tells us exactly what to do to be saved. Unless we are willing to submit to the will of Almighty God, we can't be saved. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name done many mighty works, and in your name cast out demons? People that were sincere, honest, good hearted, hard working. What was the problem? They didn't do the will of the Father. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Did it matter when they transported the ark? Yes, it mattered. Ask Uzzah. It matters whether or not we follow scripture. Now again, don't take my word for it. You go home and you put to the test what I've said. Validate it in your own mind. The Lord willing, I want to continue this lesson next week. I really don't like to be in the habit of carrying lessons over. But sometimes there's so much material and there are so many things to think about, it requires extra time. And I know I've gone over tonight and I apologize for that. But what we're talking about is serious, serious stuff. We're talking about matters of faith the salvation or condemnation of the souls of people. What we want to do is follow what the Bible says. That's all we're trying to do. All we're trying to do is say, look, this is what Scripture teaches. If you can find it in the Scriptures, believe it. If you can't, leave it alone. So tonight I want to ask you, are you a New Testament Christian? In the New Testament, when people obeyed the gospel. Here's how they were identified as disciples according to Acts chapter 5. They were identified as believers, Acts five fourteen, followers of the way, Christians, Acts chapter 11. If you'll obey the gospel, you can be a Christian, nothing more, nothing less. You can be a follower of Jesus. And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the Lord, then I want to encourage you, come home. I want you to know that God loves you. God's interested in your soul. I want you to live faithfully until death. Whatever your need may be, we encourage you to come. And I want to say this very quickly before I close. I mentioned a moment ago the sinner's prayer. Sometimes people will go to 1 John 1, verse 9, where John said, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe that verse. I believe it with all my heart. But I believe that John in that context was writing and speaking to Christians. Those who were... In the body of Christ. As a member of the body of Christ, when I stumble and fall, when I fall short of the will of God, what can I do? Pray to God. Ask Him to forgive me. What will He do? He'll forgive me. That's what John said. James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. We have that right. It's called God's second law of pardon. Would you come as we stand and sing?